I'm very pleased to be at Oxford. I have friends here and have made a few uh, visits to see friends over the years, but this is the first time anyone has ever invited me actually to talk, and I'm sure it'll be the last once you hear what I have to say. But uh, it is a, 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 a thrill for me, and, and I uh, thank in particular my colleague and friend, Professor Akende, uh, for making this happen. Professor Akende is one of our uh, team of international advisors for the Restatement Project uh, and has provided invaluable help to us as we try to uh, take this project away from a purely American-centric view of the world and, and, and uh, I, I won't say globalize, but at least make it somewhat more cosmopolitan than it might otherwise be. Uh, so what I want to do is talk about the relationship between the field of foreign relations law and the field of public international law. Uh, to do that, I think I need to explain a little bit what I mean by foreign relations law. Uh, I, I, it's In the United States, I think we now have a well-crystallized debate over what foreign relations law is and what it does and what its problems are. Uh, I, I anticipate that we're going to see more of this other places in the world as well. Uh, and, and I want to then discuss briefly the critique of uh, foreign relations law, the problems it presents for public international law, and then finally, and, and this I think is the uh, least well-developed part of, of my talk, uh, I, I want to explain why I think foreign relations law doesn't necessarily pose a, a problem. It poses a challenge, but not a problem for public international law. So first, just a little bit about what I mean when I say foreign relations law. Uh, the term in the U.S. has been around for more than half a century, but the particular controversial use of the concept, I would say, is only about oh, 20 years old uh, at most. Uh, the restatements, uh, beginning with the naming convention... Oh, I, I should mention, by the way, there are there's an electronic version of this, just something I knocked off uh, on the Eurostar yesterday with the help of a couple of glasses of wine. So I know there are some mistakes, but if you want a, a, a copy, uh, uh, my colleagues here can give it to you, or you can ask me directly, and I can shoot it to you. It's very much an informal paper and a work in progress. But uh, uh, essentially, the, the uh, foreign relations law of the United States as a project of the American Law Institute goes back to the 1950s. Uh, but both the second and third restatements, the second was the first, the third was the second, they have odd naming conventions, uh, was very much from the perspective that international law is out there, it is uniform and universal, and our interest is only in how we bring international law into the United States, how the United States complies with international law and the impact of international law on the domestic law of the United States. But no suggestion in either of the restatements that uh, this process of incorporation of international law might itself be transformative, that the content, maybe even the methodology of determining international law might change as it becomes domestic law. Uh, the critique of this uh, developed in the 1990s, 
and it was in part a product of the success of the restatement, the overall product of the, the project of the third restatement, 1980 to 1986, basically, uh, was to increase the significance of international law within the U.S. domestic legal system to make it something more available for judges to apply in a wider range of cases, even something that could be used to push the direction of our constitutional doctrine to some extent. Uh, And with success breeds controversy. Uh, So as international law began, began to be applied in a wider range of, of legal practice within the United States, uh, particularly by our, our, our federal courts, uh, disputes arose, um, what, A, whether this was proper, and B, whether our judges got it right when they talked about international law. One of the problems uh, or benefits, uh, features of our legal system in the United States is our judges are generalists. We don't really have specialists in any particular field, uh, and we don't have specialized courts. So there's no particular locus where one can be an international law judge within the domestic court system of the United States. And there aren't even people who are seen as authorities to whom others bow. Uh, Rather, there are maybe nodes of dispute um, uh, within the domestic legal system about these issues. So the uh, use of international law at all became controversial in the United States, and some of the particular claims about the content of international law uh, were uh, both domestically controversial but also within the international community. Uh, 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 Judge Higgins, uh, when she was on the ICJ, uh, indicated that some developments in U.S. jurisprudence that purported to be expressions of international law were not accepted elsewhere in the international community. Uh, Without getting into the particulars of those disputes, I would just say that not surprising, given that you're bringing a specialized field as a tool for generalist judges, that there would be some controversial applications and disputes. Uh, The critical approach that we might call the foreign relations law movement in the United States uh, uh, had two fronts in its critique. Uh, One was uh, a purely domestic, technical set of issues as to whether the claims, excuse me, the claims made in the third restatement about the ways we bring international law into the U.S. legal system whether customary international law is also federal common law within our system, uh, whether treaties are presumptively self-executing within the U.S. legal system, issues of that sort, templates for interpreting ambiguous statutes in order to bring international law to bear to those, into those statutes. Um, this was controversial. But there was another level of critique as well, which is that the content of international law that was thought to be desirable to bring in was, in fact, complicated. Uh, uh, Basically, two challenges. One, that international law, by its nature, formed by consensus across states with and other actors with very diverse interests, uh, tends to paper over those differences with uh, capacious um, 
indefinite statements, standards rather than rules, uh, and that uh, too often the argument went uh, this characteristic meant that international law simply was a way of saying to downstream decision makers such as judges, do what you think best. Uh, the other critique uh, that was articulated uh, was that to some extent international law can be, some aspects of it are illegitimate, uh, particularly to the extent that we're talking about customary international law formed on the basis of the practice of, of bureaucrats, both domestic and international, and uh, NGOs as opposed to elected officials acting in governments or in legislatures. Um, there are other responses to these critiques, including within the U.S. Uh, as I'm, I'm sure you know, we have a movement of, of international administrative law, uh, which uh, can be seen as an effort to reform public international law from within, borrowing from both human rights law and uh, sort of best practice in domestic uh, public law to reconceive of how international law is made to make it a more... Uh, useful and legitimate product. Uh, but that's not the critique uh, of the foreign relations law people uh, in the United States. Uh, the critique instead is that um, as it uh, becomes more, as international law becomes more relevant within the domestic legal system, it is shaped by domestic factors that what ought to be interesting is not the original international law source, but the way it's remade as it's used in the domestic legal system. Uh, that, 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 I would say, is the overarching claim of the foreign relations law critique. Now, the talk about the fourth restatement for a second, again reminding you the fourth is the third. Uh, uh, the, this is a project that started in 2012. Uh, the American Law Institute, which is the master of this project, is a, uh, a private organization that I think fairly can be called the, the club of the good and the great of the U.S. legal establishment, uh, sort of equal numbers, judges, professors, and private practitioners. And the role of the reporters is to produce something that is submitted to the council, which is a sort of super committee of roughly 60 people that is really a remarkable collection of lead, leading figures uh, in, in the U.S. legal establishment. And the uh, council, in turn, seeks the approval of the membership. I think there are roughly 2,500 members of the American Law Institute. And then the council has the ultimate say on the product that's published. Uh, we are... I think a year and a half away from completing what we've started, but what we started is, we hope, only the start. Uh, uh, it was decided rather than replicating what was done by the two earlier restatements, we would pick off pieces. We think pieces that are easier to do um, and uh, to get them done. And if the enterprise is seen as successful, then to take on the more challenging parts. Uh, so that ultimately, if all goes well and if the ALI people are happy with what we're doing, maybe within, let's say, 10 years, we will have something that covers much of the ground of the third restatement. Uh, the pieces we're doing now are uh, jurisdiction, uh, sovereign state immunity, and uh, treaties. 
there are big gaps. For example, we're looking at treaties in the technical U.S. Tech sense of the uh, term as opposed to the Vienna Convention sense of the term. So there's a, the overwhelming number of international agreements to which the U.S. is a party are not treaties in the Article II sense of the term in our domestic law. That's for later. Uh, state immunity is very important, but there's a lot more to immunity than state immunity. For example, the immunity of officials, that's for later. Uh, and when we look at jurisdiction, jurisdiction to adjudicate, prescribe, and enforce, um, there are whole areas of law, such as customary international law, that we're not really digging down in yet because the status of customary international law in U.S. law is so controversial. Um, I think it's fair to describe the, uh, what's emerging, if you look at the drafts that we've produced, is, I would argue, not a diminution of public international law, but a more precise cabining of the role of public international law. The third restatement, if you go back and look at it, it starts with a series of claims about the content of public international law, particularly the area I'm concentrating on, jurisdiction. Uh, the uh, restatement made a number of claims about international law limits on the jurisdiction to prescribe, such as the principle of reasonableness to be developed in a case-by-case -case basis, uh, and then said the United States follows this international law principle. So the strategy was to first articulate rules of international law and then to say, and we have this too in the United States. Uh, the strategy that we're taking now, by contrast, is to talk about U.S. practice. And, and uh, in some instances, we believe that the claims uh, about both jurisdiction to adjudicate and jurisdiction to prescribe that were found in the third restatement were probably unfounded then and certainly produ produced a, a significant amount of criticism internationally and, and cannot be said to be public international law today. Um, but it nonetheless is U.S. practice. So what we're trying to do is not launch an assault on international law, but to be clearer about where a law rests on the particular practice of the United States as opposed to that of the international community as a whole. Um, so uh, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with talking about uh, federal, uh, I'm sorry, foreign relations law as a specific field? Um, it has been very successful in the United States. Uh, it, now we have case books, we have courses, we have you know groups that meet independently of institutions such as the American Society for International Law. Uh, so we have a genuine movement. And uh, I think it's fair to say, if you look at government practice, uh, I think this has been true of all administrations, at least since 9-11, uh, which was an event that gave increased salience to this idea that international law uh, is local as opposed to general and universal, uh, that uh, the U.S. government and its lawyers uh, in, in both the Bush and Obama administrations have been making this argument, uh, talking about the particularities of international law uh, suitable for U.S. needs as opposed to... Uh, seeking to build a universal structure. So is this a problem? 
is this particularist relativistic approach to international law a problem? Uh, on its face, I would argue it must be uh, that the nature of international law is to posit a set of rules that, uh, particularly if we're talking about the customary international law, public international law, uh, a set of rules that are applicable to all subjects of international law. Um, and the rules cannot change. The law is not a respecter of persons, that the law uh, has to apply um, to all actors. Of course, law can take on different meetings in different contexts. I think everyone would accept that qualification. But that the basic content of public international law is uniform and universal. What foreign relations law seems to be saying is uh, not necessarily so, that uh, at least when it becomes practical, for example, when it falls into the hands of domestic courts, that it takes on a hybrid character, uh, that in order to understand what's going on, we have to not only understand the international origin of the standard or rule that's being applied, but also something of the institution that's supplying it. Moreover, I would argue, uh, this is no longer confined entirely to the United States, uh, that something like foreign relations law is emerging, A, in the Commonwealth, and B, and I think this is more problematic, I'm not sure this is right, but I think something uh, in Europe, in the content of EU law, can be seen as uh, comparable in many ways to uh, what is going on in foreign relations law. Now, first of all, the Commonwealth. Uh, Campbell McLachlan has his book uh, published last year on uh, foreign relations law, addressing a Commonwealth audience, uh, playing off the developments in the United States. Uh, on its face, if you look at, at Campbell's book and if you look at others who are working on this in the Commonwealth, it seems to be pushing in the opposite direction. Uh, I did a talk with Campbell uh, here in London uh, a year ago uh, in which uh, the f initial take on what we were saying is America and, and the Commonwealth seems to be going in the opposite directions, that the Commonwealth seems to be trying to reduce the crown prerogative. That's the basic nature of Campbell's project, I think, to uh, use the rule of law to make inroads on the crown prerogative, drawing particularly on international law as a way of, of doing that. So that there is now foreign relations law where there once was crown prerogative. I'm simplifying grossly and unfairly when I'm describing Campbell's argument, but I, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, and on the other hand, you Americans, the argument is, are trying to uh, move away from international law and, and to make this more uh, simply domestic law and, and simply put international law off to the side. Um, I, I think if we just look at where we are at the moment, that's a good early take on what's going on. Uh, but I suspect, I only suspect, that as foreign relations law, as, as people like McLaughlin have conceived it within the Commonwealth, gets underway. If this effort to uh, reduce the crown prerogative, particularly in foreign affairs, and to replace prerogative with law succeeds, there will be pressure to make the law 
that governs, the, uh, that replaces the prerogative domestic rather than international, influenced by international, but still ultimately domestic. Uh, one case that I talk about in, in my little sketched out paper is Muhammad versus Secretary of State. Uh, 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 in case, uh, I, I assume it's widely known, but uh, would not be in an American audience. So uh, uh, it, it, it takes the uh, jurisprudence of the Strasbourg Court that the convention governs the acts of parties to the convention wherever they are, and that includes theaters of combat such as Afghanistan. And then the Supreme Court uh, embracing this jurisprudence and saying that under the Human Rights Act, it governs, uh, provides a rule of decision for British courts. Uh, and, and putting these elements together, we have a tort suit based on both uh, the convention and Afghan law brought by a individual who was, I'll say, encountered in uh, a field of combat. I, I think it's quite contested what he was doing in that area and, and whether he was a combatant. But what's not contested was that he was held for considerably longer than the 96 hours <laughs> that uh, Strasbourg seems to permit uh, uh, for detention without judicial review. Uh, he was ultimately released and now is bringing a tort suit. And the uh, uh, Court of Appeals uh, upheld that claim, uh, leaving uh, leave to appeal to the Supreme Court so that it'll be two or three years before we get ultimate resolution of this issue. What's interesting about the Muhammad case to me is not its holding, but its dictum where the court seems to say, we feel constrained by Supreme Court jurisprudence that reaches outcome, but we think it's, they don't say daft, but they certainly intimate that they think it's daft and, and that they are inviting the Supreme Court to uh, uh, retreat to some extent from its jurisprudence and to create some separation between English law and the uh, law of torts that it admits, although torts based on foreign sources, and, and the obligations of Strasbourg. Uh, so I don't know if this is going anywhere or not, of course, until the Supreme Court uh, uh, responds to this challenge from the Court of Appeals. There's no way of knowing. I will note that there are other, it seems to me as an outside observer, by no means an ex expert on what's going on here, that there is increasingly certain levels of criticism about the relationship between uh, Strasbourg law in particular, I'd say, rather than general international law and, and the domestic law uh, of uh, England and Wales, uh, that we see this from members of the Supreme Court, we see this from members of government, we see this from members of parliament. We have not actually seen any important legal instruments, any steps taken based on this criticism. But I, I'm all I need to say is I'm detecting a area of contention now uh, where uh, the domestication of international law uh, is being sought to be filtered in some way, although how that filtering will take place remains to be seen. Uh, the other area where I think something like this is going on is in European law. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Cadi case, which uh, you'll recollect was the uh, what was then the ECJ, now the Court of Justice of the European Union, saying that 
uh, regardless of uh, the obligations of members of the United Nations to fulfill the mandate of the Security Council, that European law interposes itself between the members of the European Union and the mandates of the Security Council. Uh, and it is this interposition that I find interesting. There also is an ongoing discussion, uh, which I have by no means mastered, about the ongoing status of bilateral investment treaties to which individual member states are parties in light of European law generally. Uh, and and I, I just see this as another example of a body of law. Uh, you might use a definitional trick and say all European law is international law, so what's the point? But, but I don't think that's right. I think European law has to be seen as, as sui generis, not exactly international law, but not domestic law either. And it's becoming, it seems to me, a form of foreign relations law. It's doing many other things too, don't misunderstand me. But among the things it does is to become uh, a form of foreign relations law in the sense that we t are talking about it now in the United States. So we have on three different fronts, if we will, the United States, the United Kingdom, and the European Union generally, uh, some effort to localize and make relative rules of general international law as they become meaningful and salient within the domestic legal system. Uh, in all three jurisdictions, I would argue, the triumph of the optimists of the 70s and 80s that wanted to make international law uh, more salient by having it govern more directly the act of independent lawmakers such as judges is coming back to some extent to, if not haunt us, at least complicate things for us because in each place where we see this happening, we see uh, movement away from the uniform and universal international law that uh, seems to me fundamental to the concept. Uh, and I think this is a problem. I also think it's a problem because it parallels two other developments in the field, uh, one of which I note, the other which I can be seen as complicit in, personally. Uh, the one I note is the fragmentation uh, debate. The argument is that we get so much lex specialis that is so uh, different in its uh, work and its content that we are losing the idea that there really is a center that there really are general principles of public international law. Uh, the uh, International Law Commission's commissioned a study by Professor Koskinyemi uh, on this point. He tried to square the circle by positing that there are some general principles of international law that are just more powerful than others, and in particular human rights is the thing that ties everything together. Um, so he acknowledges the problem but says as long as we have a core and he identifies the core as human rights law, things will be okay. Other people have talked more generally about a, a kind of a principle of conflicts of law, of public international law, that would uh, at, at least organize the field and therefore um, discipline, if not solve, the fragmentation problem. Maybe, uh, but my concern is that both Koskinyemi's approach and the... Uh, approach of what I'll call the conflicts of law people uh, are really more aspirational than uh, concrete 
uh, and, and I don't think the problems are going away, identified by fragmentation. Uh, the related movement is something that uh, I think we've only seen really underway in the last five years, but it's gotten a lot of traction uh, as evidenced by two books that are being published by Oxford University Press on the subject in the next year or so. Uh, one is a monograph by Anthea Roberts, and the other is a conference volume, uh, which I'm one of the editors with Anthea and two of my young colleagues, Pierre Hus, uh, Verdier, and uh, Emilia Verstag, uh, on the idea of comparative international, uh, on, on the empirical claim that whatever people say, when we look at practice, we see systematic as opposed to random differences in the way particular states articulate develop, apply, and interpret international law. And that these differences are what's really interesting about the field. So we have uh, foreign relations law, which concentrates particularly on the interface between uh, public international law and domestic law. We have fragmentation, which looks at uh, the breakdown of, of uniformity within the sphere of public international law. And then we have comparative international law, that again uh, talks about a breakdown in uniformity and universality, but not looking only at the domestic law interface, but at uh, deeper uh, differences among states, such as the way international laws are, international lawyers are trained and promoted, uh, and the jobs they are given. Uh, as suggesting really different realms of law, uh, different fields of law, all flying under the same general banner of international law, but really so different as to um, be interesting only in their differences. All of these movements, it seems to me, poses a challenge to the idea that there is something out there that goes beyond the concrete, specific commitments memorialized in things like treaties uh, that is international law and that is a force for peace, development, and civilization, uh, and, and that uh, uh, one can see these challenges as existential, as different from earlier challenges such as the critical legal studies movement and the third world approaches to international law movement, which at least as I understand them, were really more about who runs international law than whether international law is a coherent topic to be uh, studied at all. Uh, uh, it, it, it seems to me that the, the challenges that are now being presented are, is there anything that we can call international law, as opposed to, are the wrong people running it, which is a sort of crude way of describing critical legal studies and the third world uh, approaches movements. So having identified these challenges, uh, what is my response? Uh, how is it that I can uh, embrace what in the US we would call the turn to foreign relations law as a useful development and still believe that international law can come out of this, uh, uh, these series of critiques, these series of challenges, uh, stronger and better than ever. Uh, in order to justify uh, a vision of international law that survives these critiques. I think it's necessary, and it, 
Of course I would, because this has been the story of my entire career, so I'm just laying out my preferences here. I, I think a uh, functional rather than an ideological approach to international law is necessary, that we ought to look at international law as a tool that societies, groups of people use to solve problems, and uh, that international law both shapes the agenda for those problems um, uh, so it both is something that explains and is something that is explained by uh, particular social configurations. But it is first and foremost, for me, something that operates in society and that its interactions with society is what we ought to find interesting. And by contrast, I would, as I've done my entire career, or downplayed the role of reason and imagination in talking about international law, not because I don't like reason and imagination, uh, but because I, I'm not sure reason and imagination get us very far in responding to these uh, challenges that we're now saying. What reason and imagination might say, it seems to me, I'm now operating at an extremely abstract level, and I, I ask your forgiveness and forbearance as I do this. What we might be saying is, well, these three movements of the last 15 years are short-term phenomena. The people are seizing on uh, noise and missing the signal. Uh, use whatever metaphor that you want. That, that, that the things that foreign relations law, comparative international law, fragmentation are talking about are epiphenomenal rather than basic. And there is a base, and it will emerge, and you, with enough reason and imagination, we will understand it and explain it and sell it to the rest of the world so that we just have to be patient. Maybe. But I find the empirical basis of these three movements important and challenging. I, don't, I can't say that history might not show that the phenomena that are being studied are in fact transient and unimportant. Maybe they are. Uh, but uh, one thing I'm confident, confident of is that people in these three uh, movements are not making it up, uh, that these are real phenomena, and, and uh, we need uh, to account for them in some way. So what I would do is say international law is a big tent, use a metaphor from American politics, uh, that uh, within it there are many problems to be solved. There are many different communities uh, and that each community has its own set of norms, customs, institutions, tools available to make international law work for it, and that we shouldn't assume that what is declared and called international law in one community is necessarily the same that you'll find somewhere else. Uh, I've, I've previously written about the difference between international law in uh, interactions among bureaucracies, first and foremost military bureaucracies, uh, versus international law in the hands of, of courts, versus international law in the hands of governments, uh, and uh, versus international law in the hands of academics. And, and international law has distinct roles to play for each of these groups, and I think it's unreasonable uh, to expect them to coalesce into a single set of principles and rules. Uh, I think appreciating the diversity and uh, variety of, of these communities is itself useful and bolsters international law and may even make international law useful. 
uh, an illustration I use in the paper uh, that may or may not be uh, uh, persuasive. It may or may not even be uh, uh, defensible. But but I, I have been interested in the standard of attribution. When is an a actor that is a subject of international <laughs> law held responsible for acts carried out by others who are not formally part of that subject. And I'm using subject uh, ambiguously because I think this applies both to states and private entities such as multinational corporations to the extent that we're talking about the responsibility of both for violations of international law. Um, the uh, we look at the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice, we see the leading case, the uh, um, U.S. versus Nicaragua, uh, uh, where the standard of attribution is direct control and command. I'm paraphrasing, but I think that roughly captures it. If you look at the jurisprudence of the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, it's, it's a much broader... Uh, general responsibility as opposed to direct control and command standard. And if you look at the U.S. courts that have been talking about the uh, uh, liability of multinational corporations for acts of third parties done at least with the knowledge and perhaps with the supervision of those corporations, uh, you have decisions that are all over the map. Uh, some of them talking about there being a single international law standard, others saying uh, international law is incoherent, and we will talk instead about a U.S. standard borrowing in a common law way from uh, other U.S. practice. Uh, you might look at this example and say, well, that just proves that international law is not doing its job. If it can't come up with an answer to such a simple question as attribution, uh, what good is it? Uh, on the other hand, if you believe that each of these practices are distinct and governed by particular needs, uh, then a different standard in each particular module, if you will, each particular place of practice is understandable and doesn't necessarily have to be seen excuse me, as a repudiation of international law. So I have argued that the ICJ approach makes perfect sense if you see the ICJ as worried about uh, wary uh, states, not only great powers, but certainly the great powers too, who are concerned about power grabs by the ICJ, and that the ICJ, uh, whose jurisprudence uh, applies to whoever appears before it, and, and the question of whether a state uh, appears before it is within that state's control in the sense that states can, and in the Nicaragua case did, the United States did withdraw its consent to ICJ jurisdiction. So to protect its jurisdiction, the ICJ uh, has good reason to have a rather strict standard of attribution uh, to indicate more generally to watching states that we are not engaged in a power grab, that we're not going to go beyond what you can reasonably expect in terms of being surprised by liability in this forum. By contrast, in the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, uh, jurisdiction is quite nicely defined both in terms of geography and time. There's no risk of a power grab or at least the risk of a power grab by the tribunal is quite limited and, and not threatening to um, 
states generally, so that we might ex anticipate that the uh, tribunal will have a more generous standard in order to expand its writ to solve more problems. And you might expect the U.S. courts that are dealing with this, that are dealing with it entirely within a specific legal context, namely the so-called alien tort statute and uh, private suits of liability that are based on uh, claims of violations of international law, uh, might be particularly confused given how many U.S. law issues are bundled up with the application of that international law claim. Um, so we can look at the practice that we have emerged and say, well, international law is doing different things in different places, and as long as there are coherent and rational distinctions, uh, defensible distinctions, we're not in a world where everyone claims their own international law for themselves, and therefore there is no international law to apply, uh, but rather we're looking at a complex social phenomenon that nonetheless can be very useful. Uh, my last point, I think the most, uh, sort of the throwaway, most problematic part of, of, of the written remarks is I don't see an alternative that I'm happy with, uh, and partly because I look at the history of claims of universal norms that are detached from particular authoritative, politically accountable actors uh, uh, you know, what I call the strong conception of the invisible college, to borrow Oscar Schachter's term. Uh, and and I, I can point to historical instances where this concept has taken on scary dimensions, where a, a international movement of people who see further into the future, see better than we do, um, has been, to put it gently, problematic. Uh, if you go back far enough in the history of international law, the claim of the universal Catholic Church to provide uh, norms for relations among states as well as to govern princes and their subjects uh, fell apart. Uh, if you look at the 20th century, uh, the, the two great and scary international movements were what I call international socialism and national socialism, uh, both of which uh, t turned out, I, I think, to have horrendous implications. Now, none of this was about, or very little of what was awful about international socialism and national socialism, that's to say Soviet-style socialism and national socialism as in Italy, Germany, Spain, and the rest, uh, very little of this was about international law, and many, uh, perhaps the international lawyers we revere the most from the 20th centuries were in fact exiles from those movements rather than subject to those movements. So I, I don't want in any way to suggest that because of, of these bad historical experiences uh, that uh, the uh, ideal of uh, uh, uniformity and universality in international law is, is condemned. Uh, all I'm trying to uh, argue is I see a problem, and I worry about that problem, and, and I think when we come up with claims about uh, universal norms that are deeper than states, uh, that we have to worry about uh, is it only because we're smarter and better than everyone else and doesn't it worry us that other people who were thought at one time to be smarter and better turned out maybe not to be so? 
Um, so at the end of the day, uh, I, I think this turn towards foreign relations law, which is underway in the U.S. and I think is about to be underway here and perhaps elsewhere in the world, is a positive phenomenon, as I see the debate about fragmentation and comparative international law as positive because I, I think it forces people who do public international law, and I like to consider myself one of them, uh, to be more practical and more useful uh, and, and more grounded, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Thank you. So, uh, any questions? So, um, let's take the example of attribution because, I mean, I may agree to, to some extent with some, with some points that you made, for example, that, so you make the point that international is not necessarily universal and uniform, there are different states that engage in different practices, and then I wonder, why, why is that particularly new? Isn't that what international law is all about? It connects a little bit with the, with the, the comment that you made earlier as part of the criticism to um, foreign relations law, where some people say, oh, it's international law is illegitimate because it's made by executives, um, unelected executives that are un unaccountable. And that, in a way, reveals complete ignorance about how international law is formed, because anybody who knows anything about international customary law knows it's not necessarily made by executives. It's also made by courts applying that law. It's also made by legislatures passing laws. And it's also made by the executive, to some extent. So state practice is not the practice of the executive. It's the practice of the state. Um, and the state has many organs. Um, and so the fact that there are rules of international law that are differently applied in US courts than they are in UK courts than they are in, I don't know, German courts um, than they are in EU courts is actually nothing so shocking. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, and the whole thing coalesces into rules which have a core that everybody accepts and then um, have particular ways in which they apply differently or are misapplied differently in the different jurisdictions. And I think the example of attribution that he gave is telling because he compared Nicaragua, he compared Nicaragua to the ICTY um, jurisprudence, so I, I suppose you meant Tavich. Um, and then he compared it to US courts talking about attribution of acts to multinational corporations for violations of international law. Taking the last thing first, I mean, in international law, there are no international obligations on corporations. There's absolutely no way in which you can show that there are public international obligations on corporations, except in very, very limited circumstances. And if you take um, um, OUP monographs, sort of, as a, as a show, there is a very recent one um, that deals exactly with this issue. The obligations are on states to regulate corporations, not on corporations themselves. So we're not talking about public international law, so that's going to go out of the way. Um, and then Nicaragua and Tavich, you know, if you take a sort of sociological approach talking about the ICJ wanting to sort of protect its clientele in some way, just making sure that states keep coming um, and they don't see it as a power grab, but we're the same way you can turn around and say about the ICTY, um, that was Antonio Cassese going bonkers because he wanted to uh, sort of create a court of his own. If you take those types of explanations, but there is the type of explanation that you can take between the two that the ICJ itself took, um, which says, well, they were talking about something else. And in another context, that rule may apply differently. So it's perfectly explainable in a way. Um, so a long way of saying 
Okay, but isn't that what international law is all about? Isn't that about how the rules coalesce and how they're formed? So uh, it's a f great and fair point, and and uh, I, I I can't you know um, prove that one of us has the better perspective, but I I can suggest uh, that your response reminds me of a criticism made of our great common law judge, Henry Friendly, in the United States, uh, who, it was asserted, used his uh, powers as a, uh, and he was the most revered judge of his generation in the 50s through the early 70s in the United States, but it was said of him that he uh, was such a good common law uh, judge that he could always find a distinction for everything and therefore never was really ruled governed by any rule of law. And, and uh, I'm not saying that this is your argument, but I'm saying that your argument could be abused in that direction. We can always make distinctions. We always uh, can explain why the exception proves the rule. Um, and, and, and perhaps that's all we're seeing here. And perhaps that's all that's going on in these instances, in the instance I chose as an example. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's interesting to me as an American lawyer to look at the puzzle that the American courts were in in the ATS cases. And, and I, by the way, wholly agree with you about international law has nothing to say about corporations. I, uh, I'm proud that I wrote the brief that persuaded the Second Circuit that that was true in Kiabel. Uh, um, uh, but uh, that's not the way the majority of the courts approach that problem. So they, they believe that there was an international law rule and that their job was to figure out what the international law rule was uh, rather than accepting the argument that international law simply doesn't address this and that we therefore have to use something else, some other tool, uh, some borrowing somewhere else. Uh, and, and then they were really befuddled about how do we choose. And they didn't say, well, Tadic is about something else than Nicaragua. They assumed that they both, uh, although, of course, they had many w things that distinguished the two cases, that there was a core principle at stake, and they simply disagreed. Um, so I think at the end of the day, if you believe that international law will survive because we can make fine distinctions, uh, good. Good and 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 all all I'm talking about is just a little bit of careerism where you know scholars are getting identified with their own little projects and making their own little uh, noise in the field and and no one gets harmed and and and, and that's fine, uh, but you know it's also possible that there really is something here that the distinctions at some point drop away and aren't all that persuasive and that there is a more fundamental instability or at least we ought to worry about the uh, a possibility of a, a fundamental relativism uh, that uh, might imply there really are no core principles that pull everything together at the end. I think that's at least a conversation worth having. Mm -hmm. that in the third uh, it started from the general principle of international law and then looked at the US practice. Would you change it or would you have to change it to focusing purely on the US practice but wouldn't that be more problematic from the perspective of some of the concerns that you raised that 
foreign relations law is trying to pull away some aspects that are simply governed by international law and make it domestic law. So I, I was wondering if you could explain the change a little bit more. Sure, uh, happy to. Um, and, and maybe just to give us some context, I might start with the second restatement, which was the first, where, where it was almost entirely uh, about um, international law and the state structure of the United States and said almost nothing about international law in the courts. So it was more about how government lawyers and legislators think about international law in the United States. That, and And... Perhaps for that reason, the second restatement had very little impact. Um, if you look at judicial <laughs> citation counts and, and scholarly citation counts, it had a very small footprint. The third restatement was huge, and, and I think the ALI still considers it perhaps its most important modern accomplishment, the most important product of the restatement since World War II. Uh, and the emphasis was on arguments for giving courts tools drawn from international law, sort of bypassing the executive and the legislature uh, in various ways. And, and, uh, uh, and part of that meant finding a lot more that was international law. And, and if you look particularly at the rules of prescriptive jurisdiction, since that's what I've been working on most recently, uh, but also adjudicative jurisdiction, you look at... Um, so to use an easy example, uh, I hope it's an easy example, the uh, authors of the third restatement believe that what we call tag jurisdiction in the U.S., you know, if I serve you physically with service of process, the court has jurisdiction over you as long as you happen to appear, however briefly, uh, assuming no fraud uh, in, in the territory of the court, then the court's power to adjudicate your case exists. That's what we call tag jurisdiction. Third restatement said that this violated international law, and, and they anticipated that it would be rejected by the United States because they believed that international practice did not support this. Uh, I, I, A, the Supreme Court about four years later said, well, in fact, this is what we do in the United States, and it's completely constitutional. And, and, uh, and secondly, I don't think you can find... Uh, uh, states outside the United States that reject this, rejecting it on the basis of international law. I think they reject it on the basis of concerns about fairness and judicial economy. Uh, so the claim that was made back in the mid-'80s that there was a observable principle of general international law involving power to adjudicate as opposed to power to enforce a judgment, uh, I, I just don't think the evidence was there. And what we're saying today is, as to this issue, we don't think international law addresses it. We uh, appreciate the criticisms of TAG jurisdiction, and particularly with respect to recognition of foreign judgments that's built into U.S. practice. We think that's good. Um, but what we can't say is that the Supreme Court in 1990, when it upheld TAG jurisdiction, authorized a violation of public international law. Um, with respect to prescriptive jurisdiction, what we're saying is that the principle of taking into account the interests of foreign sovereigns in areas where legislative power to prescribe affects people, transactions, events, where multiple sovereigns are involved, that uh, 
we do not believe that international law demands a particular way of taking for other sovereign interests into account, but we do believe that U.S. practice is to do so, and we try to describe that practice. The third restatement argued that it was a violation of public international law for the United States to exercise its jurisdictions in certain contexts where foreign sovereigns also were affected and objected. Um, and, and, and when the third restatement said that, many people, including people here in, in England, said, you're making that up, and we don't believe we are bound by this principle, for example, in competition law regulation. So, so those are, uh, I, I've tried perhaps too concretely to describe our differences in approach. We're, we, we're, try, we're trying to save international law from overstated claims about what it does in areas where we don't think the evidence is there in order to protect international law in areas where we think it is there and, and, and there is a general consensus about the content of its rules. So we do uh, uh, support universal jurisdiction, uh, for example, uh, as a principle that goes beyond... We, we do not make the argument that the treaties that authorize universal criminal jurisdiction are lex specialis and there's no underlying general principle. To the contrary, we think there is an underlying general principle. But we do try to define that a bit more precisely, partly because there's just been so much more practice in the last 30 years compared to how the third restatement approached this issue, which was with a rather broad brush. It's a change in emphasis, and we hope it's empirically based. Yeah. Hi, um, my question is more methodological, so and also, you know, perhaps a, bit, a small comment. You conclude by saying something that also Koskaniemi wrote that those who claim who make claims about universality want to cheat, and perhaps those. Who make claims about exceptionalism sometimes want to cheat. That goes perhaps both ways. But what I wanted to ask is how much, besides the, the focus on foreign relations law, how much relevant to your inquiry at the moment is what are the ripple effects of, of, the sta of such legislation or such case law and what were the reactions? of other states towards such legislation or such mm -hmm. uh, case law? Well, it's a two-edged sword, it seems to me, because uh, there is an argument that I've encountered as long as I've been in this business that you know any retrenchment gives encouragement to the bad guys, uh, that you know uh, the bad guys have changed over the years. Back when I first was uh, interested in these issues, it was we don't want to encourage the South Africans. Now we don't want to encourage the Russians or the Chinese. But, uh, you know, so the argument is any kind of retrenchment gives ammunition to people who will uh, make arguments that are pernicious. Uh, the counter-argument that I find attractive is, no, if we are careful and rigorous, we can still hold the Russians and the Chinese, their proverbial feet to the proverbial fire. Uh, we just need perhaps a more concrete basis for our claims, 
But with those bases, uh, that's why, you know, towards the end of the remarks, I say that, and, and this is very underdeveloped in, in the paper, um, uh, the whole purpose of this is to avoid the outcome that every state can claim that whatever it wants is required or at least permitted by international law, um, as my friends in Russia tend to do these days. Um, and uh, 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 the response is no. Uh, but but in order to uh, respond to the Russians, I think we perhaps need a, a better grounded uh, methodology than what I assert has been the conventional practice. Sir. Perhaps you've just given the answer to the question, but I think I'll ask it anyway. So in the end, it seems to me you're making two claims one claim would suggest that we should look we should look more carefully and rigorously at practice, less so at reason and imagination. It sounded to me like a call for a more positivistic approach to, to international law. Let's actually see what's going on. And that I I wholeheartedly endorse. Um, and the caution that you gave, you know, the guys who seem so smart that long ago that should give us pause for thought, but we think we're so smart now. Then the second claim that you seem to make, and this is where my question comes in, was one that was suggesting that, well, we shouldn't necessarily regard international law as universal, uniform. It could be, I think I heard you saying, that there are sort of areas or pockets of international law that seem to, perhaps the best way to, to paraphrase what you said, is sort of work for certain communities. So that then raises to me the question of, well, it's a big question, but what, what would international law be for then if we move back, step back from the idea that it's universal or uniform, right? So there's something very powerful about the idea that it's universal or uniform, it's equally applicable, you know, um, to, to everybody, it creates a certain standard. And when we retreat from that, we are then left, I think, still with the existential question, what's it for? So uh, it's a great question, uh, uh, but before I, I answer it, let me just make a, a sort of a preliminary point that I'm not sure is exactly your question, but it's, it's something that I do think is, is part of the project. I do believe that we international lawyers have to lower the barriers between what we do in other fields. And it's an easy argument for an American to make because uh, the structure of the legal education industry is such that we don't have the sharp boundaries between public and private and comparative, all these things. Uh, you know, I, in my own life, I've, I've done all these things, and, and there's no barrier to that. There's no, you know, I, I don't have a senior and I don't have subordinates uh, uh, in my field. So I do, part of this is public international lawyers ought to become comparativists as well. That's sort of the argument of comparative international law. Uh, uh, and, and, and to, as we get interested in particular phenomena, we have to drill down in national practice. Uh, so, uh, you know, my, my friend Andre Nolkamper and his, his great book, Oxford University Press, on domestic international law and domestic courts, I, I, I've argued to him uh, that he needs to learn more about what domestic court practice means in particular legal systems rather than assume that a domestic court is a domestic court is a domestic court, to paraphrase Gertrude Stein. Um, the, uh, now to answer your question, what is it for? 
Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, that is the challenge of jurisprudence. Uh, and, and since I'm not, I, I leave it to my colleague Fred Schauer to answer those questions. Uh, but uh, I, I have my own answers for myself. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the purpose of international law is to uh, enable greater human flourishing. And, and whether we see that in uh, you know, Benthamite terms as, as, as maximizing welfare or, or, or something more you know, denser and sophisticated than that. But, but I think at the end of the day, it, it is about you know, meeting the needs of people, uh, which begs the question of which people and which needs, of course. But, but I, I would at least start with that point. And... and, and uh, uh, but but I think as one goes down to that road, to some extent, there is both an ethical and a political judgment in, involved in those claims. Um, but I do think that as international lawyers, we, we should not lose um, sight of our technical competence as well, but also uh, burnishing our technical competence with uh, greater familiarity with the kind of problems that are conventionally talked about by comparativists and within internally within important domestic legal systems that uh, you can't just do public international law walled off from other subjects and and be a good public international lawyer i am arguing i'm not sure that answered your question Malcolm, but can, can i come back to that because i think i i thought me and Dapo are, are on the same page that there's this inherent sort of mm -hmm. problem here because then earlier you said we have to be functional rather than ideological and now you just gave a a completely ideological answer to what international law is for, in your view. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of lost, because I understand the point about looking at practice more carefully, and that's in part what I was saying, that we actually have to drill into the practice, look at the practice, because this is what makes the rules, and of course, rules can have a core and a periphery, and so on and so forth, and, and we're all here to discuss that. Um, but then you go on and say, in response to me, for example, oh, perhaps you know, little uh, differences don't matter, and what we're um, or, or distinctions fall away at some point, um, and you know, we can, we can we we're entitled not to see it as universal because it's there to serve the needs of the world, but that's universal, and also that's not necessarily functional because we can't define the needs, and defining the needs will be an ideological move. So this work, I'm kind of getting lost and how these two things come together. Well, I, uh, and fair enough. Uh, I mean, I, I thought I was giving an ideological answer to an ideological question. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I guess one of my answers is I'm not sure a good international lawyer really has to answer those questions, or at least I think one can get by answering them only in the most provisional sense. So uh, uh, I, I tried to suggest that when I said that I, I think international law ought to serve the purpose of people, uh, that I, I don't think that leads to the next step necessarily of putting an obligation on me to define those purposes at least any other way than locally and, and to uh, assert a sort of set of core human characteristics that are universal and perhaps even timeless. Uh, I mean, maybe there are. I mean, you know, uh, uh, that's tough for me. 
quite honestly. Uh, um, uh, and and, and uh, so I, I, I can look for sort of middle-level evidence of middle-level needs of humanity and be satisfied uh, uh, meeting them and, and say that the project of international law is, is doing you know, good work if it's doing that without having to come to a conclusion whether at the end of the day, what is it all about? Because quite honestly, you know, I'm, I think I'm the oldest person in the room or close to it. I don't know what at the end of the day it is all about. No, neither do I. But yeah. I, I didn't yeah. Start this. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I am saying you can do international law happily without being able to answer those questions. I have one more point if we still have time. Sure. Yeah, sure. It was the, the thing that you just mentioned you can't be a good uh, public international law lawyer without uh, practicing or understanding other areas of law. Mm hmm. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I, I would agree with that in the opposite way, that you that it's more difficult to be a good lawyer in national areas of law without understanding at least something of public international law. But I don't see it necessarily through the other way around, because that would affect the universality and the uniformity of international law, exactly if you would make the content dependent on whether you understand how something works in the national <laughs> Well, my, my argument is that we don't need universality and uniformity to do good international law. So your concern doesn't bother me, and 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 I think, uh, and, and I think you know, I, I, I you know, trans, transitivity is not essential in all systems, but there's nothing wrong with transitivity, and and. And I agree completely that one can no longer in this world be a good lawyer, period, without having some grasp of international law. Uh, I, I, but I also believe it cuts the other way, too. But international law would often not care whether, whether a national rule would apply yes or no in order to establish the breach of international obligation, for instance, because you cannot I, I understand that argument, and uh, um, um, you know, I'm involved in it in, in very concrete ways in uh, arbitration before Judge uh, McLaughlin at this moment. But uh, um, I, I, I think that's too facile a response to the problem. I, I think there are far too many really interesting and important problems that we cannot begin to understand without taking on board. Uh, other methodologies and other approaches, uh, but again, that's very easy for an American to say because we don't, you know, we, we aren't nearly as well institutionally as well defined as, as people in, in here or in the continent are. You know, we don't have departments within law. Last question. Great. So please join me. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Well, I would be. I would value your further we, thoughts on we, this. Uh, we agree on as many things as we disagree. Yeah, that's what sure. makes it fascinating. Yeah. So I, I, um, I'll, I'll be happy to have a look if you want to send me the paper. Yeah. He has a copy. He can. Oh, you have one. Okay, that would be great. But if you can send it to me, because you know, general emails. I don't, you don't have. Um, you don't have a problem. I just need to ask. I took a photo of you as you were presenting with her. Lauren stuff. Can you put sure, it on great. Facebook page, great. Twitter, and stuff. If you, you if you could share the picture with me, I oh, might put it on my Facebook page. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a, of course. I can. Um, yeah. I can email it to you. Great. I'll get your email from Sir